This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We're back. Welcome back to the Edge of Sports podcast, now brought to you by The Nation magazine. I'm Dave Zirin, and every week we will strive to bring you the news you can use at the collision of sports and politics. We got the gift of gab and the gift of jab, and we will bring it to you every week. This week, we are talking to the producer of Hoop Dreams and legendary documentary filmmaker Peter Gilbert about the legacy of that historic film and what it says about youth basketball, not only in 1994, but today in 2017. Also, I've got some choice words about the political outpouring against Trump in the NBA, a Just Stand Up award to Michael Bennett that will also include breaking news, and a Just Sit Your Ass Down award to Mike Francesa, sports radio legend and all-around jackass, and a very special Kaepernick watch about his decision to not kneel during the anthem this year. But first, producer of Hoop Dreams and legendary documentarian, Peter Gilbert. When you were making Hoop Dreams, did you realize what you had on your hands as you were looking at the footage on a day-in, day-out basis over the course of years? Absolutely not. We knew it was a great story, and I would say it took us to about their junior year where we realized that we really had something special. There were a couple of moments where what happened was when we were beginning to follow them, I don't think we were as diligent as we could have been because they were young and we kept thinking, well, we have time, we have time, you know. And then stuff started to happen so fast towards the end of the sophomore year and into the junior year. And when Arthur went to the other school, back to his inner city school and left St. Joe's, That was sort of like this moment. I can tell you the moment where I knew it was something kind of special, which was we couldn't find Arthur for days. Remember, this is before there were, you know, text messaging and all that stuff. And so finally we found him and Arthur's looking at us and he goes, why are you guys here? We're like, why wouldn't we be here? Where have you been? And he goes, well, why would you want to be in contact with me? Because I'm not out there at St. Joe's at the private school with the big time coach. You know what I'm saying? You're not interested in me anymore. Why would you be interested? I failed. I was like, no, 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 you don't get it. We're much more interested than we've ever been. Plus, you're our friend. So why would we ever walk away from you? And that that was like sort of a, a door opening into um, his life, whereas we were already sort of in that doorway with William. I I think sometimes randomly about Hoop Dreams, like just going through my day-to-day life, scenes from it, moments. And my big question is about William Gates and Arthur Agee today. What are they doing now, and how did the film, do you think, affect their lives positively or negatively? I think... Over the years, it's been an up-and-down experience. 
Because, I mean, when we were making that film, you know, documentaries were not a big deal. And I don't think that they certainly had no idea that the film was going to blow up the way it did. I mean, if you can imagine, it stayed in movie theaters a year. Yeah, and Roger Ebert called it one of the greatest movies he'd ever seen. Which was fantastic. And we, we had no idea that the film was sort of going to catch the imagination of everybody. I think what we did know, though, was that we were sort of showing a world that it was really realizing how sports allows you to look at society. And we thought that we had something really interesting there. But just to give you a a little backdrop of where we were at that time in our society about sports compared to now, no one wanted to buy the film, really. They wanted to remake it into a Hollywood film, but they didn't want to buy the film itself because who was going to go watch a three-hour film about inner-city kids who want to play basketball? I mean, that's how people looked at it. Sports was not, there was no 30 for 30. Sports films were like death. No one wanted to deal with it. Um, you know, if you think back then, think of a sports documentary. There were none. Right. And so, so what I was going to say is, so when this film sort of hit, William and Arthur became, you know, true celebrities in their own right. And they became celebrities, I think, for the right reasons, which was not because of basketball, but because they really opened up their lives to a lot of people in America and showed people that, yes, there are stereotypes and, yes, there are things in stereotypes that are broken all the time. And I think that was kind of part of the thing that was really hard for them sometimes, which is an example would be people would look at William and go, oh, you're just that kid who, you know, is 15 years old, knocked up his girlfriend. Mm. But then if they knew that he's been married to that woman since he was 18 years old and they have four kids and they're happily married, I think it might, you know, most people act surprised when they hear that. Right. Whereas for William and Catherine, it was like, what? We were in love. We're going to always be married. So it's, it's those kinds of things that I think come go back and forth for them. And also I think both of them really, really in a, in a very hard way, they wanted the dream. I mean, Arthur kept playing forever, you know, any kind of league he could get into. He even played in slam ball at one point. Do you remember that game? Yeah. Slam ball was, uh, was like spike TV. It was on a trampoline and it, it was like a mixture of football and basketball and all this crazy stuff. So you're saying hoop dreams die hard. Right, exactly. Um, and William, on the other hand, you know, had a real sort of love-hate relationship with basketball at some point because when he was playing at Marquette, um, you know, he got recruited to be a point guard. And when he got there, he was – a point guard kind of, but basically he was such a good fundamental defensive player that he would guard whoever was really the best player on the other team. So a lot of times he would be guarding LaFonso Ellis. So, you know, Williams six foot one and LaFonso Ellis is six, eight, six, nine. I mean, it was a really tough chore for him. Plus he had a daughter and was lonely and was trying to help, you know, his daughter and then soon to be wife, you know, all the time. So it was a very different college experience for him. 
And um, I think the fascinating thing is he gets out of college and he gets away from basketball. He gains weight, sort of looked a lot like his brother at one point or a little heavier, you know. And then out of nowhere gets a phone call from Michael Jordan. (laughs) And Michael Jordan was like in the middle of the NBA season. And Jordan calls him and says, you know, I'm going to try to make a comeback. I need some people to work out with me. And William's like, well, you really don't want to work out with me. I'm like 30 pounds overweight, you know, and stuff. And he goes, well, I am too. And so William actually, and I I went and saw some of this, went and trained with Jordan and his trainer. He didn't want anyone to know about it. He was really quiet about it got in the best shape of his life. And it was unbelievable. You would drive up, especially after the season when, you know, Jordan got all his NBA buddies to come and play with him to get him back into shape. You would drive up and there'd be like Bentleys and Mercedes and all this. And then Williams car. Oh my goodness. And, you know, you would go in and Jordan didn't like to have him guard him because he was such a tenacious defender and William um, Jordan actually got William a contract really. And about, I don't know, four days after he got a contract or a tryout, he uh, broke his ankle. Wow. And he just said, that's it. But I mean, you can imagine this is like five or six years after, and he's trying to come back like that. Um, So I think there's that love hate thing with basketball with him. On the other hand, right now, he's really kind of, in many ways, basketball's taking over his life. He's in San Antonio. Um, he coaches AAU ball. He coaches his sons. Two of his kids play at, um, I think it's Houston Baptist University, which is really fun for him because they both play on the same team. And his youngest kid is supposedly unbelievably good. And so basketball's never been far from his life, but at the same time, I think the movie, everything, you know, people, if you think about you're on a movie screen and you're in a poor neighborhood, people also think, oh, you must have a lot of money, just like being an NBA star. Mm. Um, And so I think there was that pressure. I think there was that pressure with Arthur. um, And William was always sort of like, a man child. So he thought of things. He was an adult when I met him at 13. That's the best way I can put it. He was more adult than I was. So, so child man, I guess we would say child man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, an amazing, amazing kid. And so, so that's a really long, uh, answer, but I think, you know, at different times over the years, I think they either see the film as a good thing or a curse. Um, I think right now they're in a place where the film was a good thing. Wow. I think when they were struggling after school and that sort of MBA dream didn't work out for them, I think it was sort of a curse. One of the things that I think your film did is it opened people's eyes up to the professionalization of youth sports, uh, something that had certainly existed for years beforehand but wasn't really known widely. Now it's almost taken as a given like a shrug of the shoulders, that that's what AAU ball, that's what youth sports, that's what the pipeline is all about. How would you approach the subject today? It was so different back then. Um, they didn't really have AAU ball. Mm. When we were filming, you're going to laugh at this, but Williams 
in Arthur's High School, the first high school that, you know, or the high school that William stayed at at St. Joseph's. I'm going to here, I'm going to ask you what, what shoe contract did they have? What do you think they had? Um, Nike. This is in the 86, 87, 85, you know, in that era. Oh man. Keds. <laughs> now, this, and this was like, wait, this was a team that was a perennial, you know, I mean, this guy has won more games than any other coach in the history of our state in basketball. He was like, he still is the guy. 86-87? L.A. Lights. What? Remember the shoes that lit up in the back when you walk on them, the little kid shoes? You can't be serious. No, that was the brand that they used. I mean, they didn't light up. (laughs) um, So, I mean, that's the different world it was. It was a real different world. And so then as the, you know, it was very interesting to watch as, you know, I think my first real was seeing them, William, because he was so good going to a lot of the camps like the ABC camps. And then all of a sudden, and there weren't many then, it wasn't like there is now, but there was like the ABC camp. There was the camp, I forget, but the one in Hampton, Virginia. But when we went to the Nike All-American camp, it was the Fab Fives year. You know, William and Arthur were in that class. William was there. Juwan Howard was his uh, roommate. And it was at Princeton University. Sonny Vaccaro was, you know, the head of the camp. And that was the thing where you just saw the intense meat market of it all. Mm. And there's this really interesting place where um, – in the film where Spike Lee, you know, who's doing all the commercials for Nike, I mean, he really helped create that brand in a way like no one else comes in and talks to all these kids and says, you know, you're going to be used by all these folks. And at the same time, you know, I'm sitting there going, well, he's kind of using them too. You know, it's all this. And that was just sort of, I think the beginning of that genesis of what's happened now where, where I'm looking at that and going, wow, that's kind of strange. Right. And at that time, if you got shoes from Nike, you had to give them back to Nike after the camp. <laughs> you couldn't, like, take them home with you. It's a brand new day. You know, now it's all about brand recognition. The idea of a high school basketball game being on television when we were doing Hoop Dreams was absurd. I mean, maybe the state title game, you know, but – not like now ESPN, you know, has contracts for all with, you know, Adidas and Nike for their AAU games in the summer. Um, the kids get are allowed to basically have unlimited swag from the companies. Shoe brands don't compete against each other. So if you're basically on a Nike team, you're going to be pushed towards Nike colleges. If you're on an Adidas team, you're going to be pushed towards Adidas schools. And it, it's just such a different world. And also, there's no street ball. No one plays outside. Wow. So it's this whole other kind. Of, everything is organized. And, I mean, I think part of that is, um, you know, there's a safety thing that people are off the street. They're inside. They're playing. But, you know, it's really turned into this unregulated wild, wild west of AAU ball. But at the same time, it's considered every day now. It, it, it's normal how 
AAU is accepted. It's no big deal to push a kid to a college or to get a kid to verbally commit to a school when he's 15 years old. Um, it really is a different world. And, you know, even the idea that places like ESPN, they own recruiting services now. So they're not just reporting, you know, news and showing sports, but they also have a recruiting service that, you know, you, if you're a kid and want to play collegiate sports, you have to somehow be registered with them. It's, it's crazy. I don't know if that was a good answer, but I'm just saying it's such a huge question. So if I was going to make a film, I mean, part of the thing that's interesting is, is that I actually have started a film. I did a film on an AAU, AAU team, and I'm not sure I'll ever release it because um, it's rough stuff. Uh, the stuff I filmed with some of the kids and their parents is stuff that I don't really feel comfortable in many ways releasing because of the kids, mm. because their parents are really wheeling and dealing. Them. And it's, it's a sad thing. You know, I, 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 Peter, I'm asking you this as someone who not only has studied this for a while, but someone who's played ball and someone who's got kids who's played ball. I mean, you've seen this from every angle. If if you could wave a magic wand, what would you do to AAU, youth sports, basketball? How would you change the system? Wow. <laughs> it just seems so parasitic, Peter. And but I don't know I don't know how you make it better unless we're talking about an entire societal or economic overhaul. Because it seems so driven by by poverty, by by race, by a predatory people. And how, how do you change that? I don't know how we can part of the part of the problem is is that it's run by a lot of i don't know how to describe it but i guess i would call them private clubs i would include the ncaa in that i would include the shoe companies in that i would include you know there's a lot of there's so much money now compared to what it used to be and then on the other side you know, it was one thing when there were only 10 television stations or, or small cable, you know, amount of stations. But now, just think of the content. That, I mean, think of the amount of media that needs to be created to be on all those different sports stations. So, I mean, pretty soon we're going to be seeing, you know, five and six-year-olds playing basketball against each other. I mean, they need – they just need to fill up time. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about it on that level, it's almost impossible to see how it sort of goes away. But I guess the magic wand for me would be is that if kids actually got back to the place where one, I think it would be nice if kids could play more than one sport if they love sports. Like now, basically, it's like you have to specialize when you're a kid. You know, they start these kids in six, seven years old, and it's like you're going to be a basketball player or you're going to be a football player. They don't really play a lot of different sports, which I think is a shame. Mm. I also think if they could take in some sense, you know, what's happened is high school sports is, I'm really talking um, basketball here, you know, with high school basketball playing for your school isn't as important as it is to play in front of coaches in the summer at these camps and at AAU tournaments. So I don't know what the magic wand is. I guess 
the magic wand would be is to sort of take a fair amount of the money out of the game. <laughs> but I just don't see it happening. And the problem is, is that more and more kids keep falling for the same dream. It just never goes away. And that, I think, is a huge societal problem. Yeah. And, I mean, you hear people talk about it all the time. But the fact is, it's like there is something amazing, and it doesn't matter now if it's in a suburb or if it's in the inner city or if it's in a small country, you know, rural area. If you're an athlete, communities feel like they own you. Right. And I think that starts seventh, eighth grade, high school. It's They feel like they've created you. I've never seen anything like it, actually, in all because that's I've done so much sports over the years. You never would see that with a doctor. You would never see that like somebody was a doctor, like a community feeling like they have ownership in you. And I think that kind of pressure on a kid is just intense. And I don't know. I think that's a whole societal shift, you know, um, it's funny, you know, I I know one athlete, you know, who's a great athlete and his brother has a law degree and also an MBA and it's unbelievable. No one would come up to his brother probably and ask him for help or feel like they have ownership with him. Even though he's this unbelievably successful person, they only care about the ball player. It's interesting. You know, it just never ends. Yeah, it never ends. I, I hope that made some sense. No, that made a lot of sense, Peter. And um, it's a unique perspective. The, the longer I'm involved with all of these types of films, and, you know, I also, you know, I'm not going to say I wasn't part of the problem, too. You know, while I was doing hoop dreams, we never thought that the kids would be pro basketball players. We really, there was one moment where we thought William really was that amazing. That was after his sophomore year in high school. I mean, we saw him do stuff that was just insane um, against pro players. And he was a kid, but then he got hurt, you know, and that's what happens. And, and really, I don't think the hurt was so much his, the need that he injured as much as confidence, you know, one that for the first time you start to think, overthink what you do. And, um, and then the other thing I was going to say is the major problem that we have is still, I'll, I'll go back to the title of the film, which my partner, Steve James, you know, came up with, which is the fact is when you have all of these, companies and adults and communities and it doesn't really matter the sport anymore that start to have that mix their dreams up with what a kid wants there's always going to be problems peter gilbert thank you so much for joining us on the edge of sports podcast oh dave thanks a lot and um Hey, everybody out there, read everything Dave writes, <laughs> books, columns. He's my sports writing hero. If you want to know more about Peter Gilbert and his work, go to the description of this podcast at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Now, 
quick word from our sponsor before we get to choice words. Edge of Sports is produced by The Nation magazine, and they got a great issue out right now about the future of media. We saw how influential the right-wing media echo chamber was during Trump's campaign, and this issue lays out how the left can build a powerful media infrastructure of its own. And by the way, the cover art on this issue, it's Gary Trudeau, it's Doonesbury, it's original Trudeau art. It's a cover you're going to want just to frame. Subscribe to The Nation at thenation.com slash subscribe. Throughout the NBA, the most respected coaches and the most decorated players, from Greg Popovich to Steve Kerr to LeBron James to Steph Curry, have been speaking out against this thing we have called a president of the United States. This is happening throughout much of the sports world, even in NASCAR, but most notably in the NBA. Over the All-Star Weekend in New Orleans last month, the question was raised, why is this happening in the NBA and why now? I've asked coaches, players, and beat writers this very question. The consensus, and this is just a little piece from what they're all saying about what makes the NBA different, is that this is happening because of a perfect storm of factors. It's not just one thing. It's the influence of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's greater comfort with social media. And it's the multicultural and global nature of the game that have inspired this majority black sports league to stand up to the white nationalism of Muslim bans and border walls. Now, many journalists and players also believe that the particular outspokenness of LeBron James and Greg Popovich has provided political cover for anyone who wants to follow suit. Others have pointed out that being anti-Trump is just good for business right now. Nike is commodifying dissent with a beautifully filmed, if crassly opportunistic, commercial starring LeBron himself. Just listen to a little bit here if you haven't heard it. On this concrete court, this patch of turf, here you're defined by your actions, not your looks or beliefs. Equality should have no boundaries. No mention about Nike workers in Southeast Asia, but let's move on and stay on topic. Look, all of these theories have merit, but they don't explain everything. Let's not forget that the NBA was largely silent during the Bush years, even after Hurricane Katrina, except for the continual voice of 10-year veteran Atan Thomas and a t-shirt worn by Steve Nash. Players like Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf were driven from the league in the 1990s in part because of their political outspokenness. Yet now, Craig Hodges is interviewed about his courage on Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday for Inside the NBA, and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf is the subject of a beautiful Outside the Lines special on ESPN celebrating his quote-unquote revival. Something else is going on here. And my theory is that it's an unintended consequence of Commissioner Adam Silver's efforts to keep the Colin Kaepernick anthem protest that sprang up in the NFL from spreading to the NBA. These are the unintended consequences of a corporate strategy that aimed to head off racial radicalism with political liberalism. Look, 
Don't forget that the question before the NBA season began was, boy, if these anthem protests are happening in the NFL, what will the NBA do? Remember Iman Shumpert of the Cavs said, you best believe we are going to protest the anthem. And yet the opening game of the season in October, with the Cavs playing the New York Knicks, whose star Carmelo Anthony was on the cover of ESPN the magazine wearing a black beret, nothing happened. So what did we get instead of anthem protests? The league-sponsored public service announcements about togetherness, featuring star players known for being vocal about police brutality, like Carmelo, Chris Paul, and Dwayne Wade, along with white guy Kyle Korver, Adam Silver, and NBPA president Michelle Roberts, that's the union, also sent each team a memo affirming the rights of players to speak out off the court and asking NBA players to contact the league or the union if they're looking for ways to make quote-unquote positive change. The approach could not have been more different from the hyper-paternalism of Silver's predecessor, Mr. Dress Code, David Stern. Silver's message was that players could be as woke as they want to be as long as it would be kept off the court and as long as it tilted towards service, not resistance. It has to be noted that this corporate strategy temporarily worked only because Adam Silver, by all accounts, sincerely cares about there being vocal, civic-minded athletes in a way that David Stern instinctively opposed. The very reason the All-Star Game was in New Orleans was because, of course, it was pulled from Charlotte, North Carolina, over the state's discriminatory legislation against LGBT people. Players took the cue from Silver, holding hands during the anthem to symbolize unity, and then saw footage of those very gestures used in the NBA's very own public service announcements. But then, a not-so-funny thing happened on the way to Kumbaya. Donald Trump was elected president, and rebellion has been normalized. Americans have been protesting since the inauguration, and a heterogeneous resistance against the grifter in the White House has taken hold. With his every tweet, Trump sends more people, even those who never thought about politics, into the streets. Players and coaches are part of this world, too, and many are just as shocked and enraged as the rest of us who believe this presidency is off the rails. They've chosen to use their platform and take advantage of the oxygen that Silver offered in return for not going full Kaepernick during the anthem. They are standing up and not stopping, even if it has gone beyond what Adam Silver could ever control. These are what are called unintended consequences. Adam Silver wanted a woke league. Well, he got it. And in the short term, no one is going back to sleep. A new feature, now that the show is being sponsored by The Nation, you know at The Nation magazine we believe and always have believed over 150 years in debate, discussion, dialogue. And my producer, David Tigabu, has some thoughts about what I just said. I'm going to try to help answer any questions he might have or disagreements. David Tigabu, welcome, at least vocally, to Edge of Sports. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. You know, I love the piece. I love the piece. One of the things that came to mind was I was listening to the, I was reading the part about Greg Popovich and the role that he plays in all this. And we know that athletes like LeBron James and others have spoken up on these issues, Trump, Black Lives Matter. But what does it say that somebody like Greg Popovich, who's a coach, you know, elder statesman, one of the most respected people in sports, 
and let's keep it real, an older white dude, and somebody like Steve Kerr as well. What does that do for the culture in terms of uh, shaping the conversation? That's a great question. The thing about Popovich, as you said, he's 67 years old. And one of the great things about a lot of his comments that he's made about Trump, and my favorite quote, just to distill it, is when Popovich says, some mornings I wake up and I feel like we've been invaded, uh, (laughs) is that Greg Popovich is always very conscious of the fact that he's 67 years old and white. And he speaks about why he's resisting Trump from that experience and speaks about the obligation that white people have to speak out against racism. And that's very powerful to me. And of course, Steve Kerr, I mean, he's someone who's held in such high regard in the NBA. And again, when you have someone not only who's white like Steve Kerr, but Steve Kerr also has a specific set of experiences. I mean, his father was killed um, in an act of terrorism in Beirut. His father is one of the most respected Middle Eastern scholars to ever live, Dr. Malcolm Kerr. A lot of people don't know that about Steve Kerr. And Steve Kerr has spoken explicitly about the fact that he lost a family member to terrorism and about how what Donald Trump is doing in terms of demonizing all people uh, who are Muslim actually is nothing that's going to make us safer and only aids bigotry and racism. So yeah, it's very important uh, that people who are not black or brown speak out against racism. It's critical to the project of putting racism in the dustbin of history where it belongs. I agree. I agree. Uh, One more question. At the at the risk of, of asking the obvious question, where do you think this goes from here? Like, does this protest movement and action, does it sustain itself over time? How do, Where does it go? Oh, heavens to Betsy. That's the $64,000 question. Um, I think so much of this protest movement against Trump, and this isn't just about the NBA, has been reactive. Donald Trump says something outrageous, does something outrageous, people hit the streets. It's going to become very important for it to become proactive and not reactive. And that's where we get to the next thing I'm going to talk about, about Michael Bennett and some breaking news, which shows what it means for an athlete to be proactive and not reactive. And yo, Dave, thank you so much for that. That was awesome. No problem, bro. And now, before we get to the Just Stand Up Award, a quick word about the Start Making Sense podcast. If you like Edge of Sports, you got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people. People like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that brings us right to the Just Stand Up Award. People might know Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett has been in the news a great deal this past month for writing an open statement about why he was not going to be part of an NFL delegation to Israel. He dropped out of the trip because it was something highly designed by the Netanyahu government and would not allow him to speak to Palestinian people. So he wrote an open letter about why he wasn't going. And by the time the publicity got around, only five of the 12 players who were signed up ended up going. Roger Waters taught us about this. It's called Hasbara. You should go back and listen to that episode of Edge of Sports. Well, Michael Bennett is not a one-issue guy. People might be aware that March 8th is International Women's Day, and a women's strike has been called where women are not going to go to work 
in protest of the sexism that pervades our society. And Michael Bennett has written a statement that is not published, and I have permission to read it. This is Michael Bennett's statement about why he is standing in solidarity with the women's strike to be held on International Women's Day. This is what he wrote. As a black man in America, sometimes I get overwhelmed and discouraged by what I see. From the police killings of unarmed black men, to the unequal educational system, to mass incarceration. But when I look in my daughter's eyes, I see the courage of Harriet Tubman, the patience of Rosa Parks, the soul of Ida B. Wells, the passion of Fannie Lou Hamer, and the heart of Angela Davis. I see the future. I see hope, and I'm inspired because it will be women who lead the future. So I'm writing this to express my unconditional solidarity for the women's strike on International Women's Day, March 8th. It would be easy for me to say that I'm supporting this day of resistance because I have three daughters and I want nothing to stand in their way as they attempt to reach their potential and achieve their goals. But this issue is a lot bigger than my dreams for my own family. It's about the women across the earth who are suffering. Women not so worried about the glass ceiling because they're trying to survive a collapsing floor. It's about women of color across the earth who live on less than $1 a day. It's about all women who are subject to sexual assault and violence. I stand with the women's strike because I agree with their unity statement that reads that this day is, quote, organized by and for women who have been marginalized and silenced by decades of neoliberalism directed towards working women, women of color, native women, disabled women, immigrant women, Muslim women, and lesbian women. I encourage my fellow football players to take off our helmets and stand with these brave women across the world. As Angela Davis once said, To understand how any society functions, you must understand the relationship between the men and the women. By that metric, our society is failing. We need change. And to quote Frederick Douglass, without struggle, there is no progress. That's Michael Bennett of the Seattle Seahawks, and that's why he is standing with the women's strike to be held on International Women's Day, March 8th. Now it's time for a new segment on Edge of Sports called the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down! And this week it goes to Mike Francesa, full-time sports radio dinosaur and part-time sexist jackass. This is what Mike Francesa said about San Antonio Spurs assistant Becky Hammond, who was the first woman to ever be an assistant coach on an NBA team. He said that Coach Hammond could never be a head coach in the NBA because, quote, It's a gender situation. They don't play. They're not players. They don't have any way to be in the league. What would qualify her to be a coach on a professional level of a men's team? End quote. Well, Becky Hammond, of course, is one of the most decorated women's basketball players ever. But let's let Greg Popovich explain why he thinks Becky Hammond would make a good coach. He said, quote, I hired her because she was in my coaches' meetings for a whole year because she was injured, and she's got opinions and solid notions about basketball. Obviously, she was a great player, and as a point guard, she's a leader. She's fiery. She's got high intelligence, and our guys just respected the heck out of her. She's out on the court. She's coaching with us. She's running drills. I don't even look at her as, well, she's the first female or this, that, or the other. She's a coach, and she's good at it. End quote. 
Becky Hammond also became the first woman to ever be the head coach of a summer league team. And according to Spurs general manager R.C. Buford, his assessment of her ability was simply, quote, we got better when she was coaching, end quote. And also, I just want to speak for myself for a second. I have been to Spurs training camp. I witnessed it for myself. Becky Hammond is a damn good coach. Mike Francesa has never been to Spurs training camp. He has never seen her in action. In other words, he is talking out of his ass. Mike Francesa, you are a dinosaur. Please remember what happened to the dinosaurs. I look forward to using you in the future as fossil fuel. And now we have a very special edition of Kaepernick Watch. Colin Kaepernick has been in the news big time this week because he has said that he is not going to kneel this coming season. He said the kneeling protests are over and he would stand for the national anthem. And I want to say what I think about that. To be very clear, as someone who has all the respect in the world for Colin Kaepernick, I am not even bothered by this. Not even a little bit. I don't care what his motivations are. All I know is this. The guy spent a year getting death threats, taking this stand. He's not stopping his activism. He's going to continue the Know Your Rights campaign. He's going to continue giving incredible amounts of money to social justice organizations. I keep thinking about the clinic that he funded at Standing Rock for the people trying to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline. And you know what's really bothering me, though, about this story? It's the fact that the same spittoon gulpers who criticized Colin Kaepernick for kneeling are the ones going hardest on him right now for not kneeling. Get the hell out of here with that. Anybody who has stood or kneeled with Colin Kaepernick in the last year owes him a debt for his courage. And his courage isn't going anywhere, just his gesture. It's such a small part of the equation, and people who are part of the movement get that. That's why his fiercest critics are the same people who have a vested interest in seeing us not protest. So thank you, Colin Kaepernick. We will continue to do Kaepernick Watch on this show because the stuff you've been doing is so much more important than one gesture. Well, that's all for the first rebooted Nation Magazine-sponsored Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much to my producers, David Tigaboo and Daniel Baker. Thank you so much for Dan Bloom for helping us do this and make the transition. Thanks to my people at The Nation, Peter Rothberg, Frank Reynolds, and thanks to everybody who's part of the Edge of Sports fam. We now have a Twitter feed just for the podcast, at Edge of Sports Pod, for latest information, tour appearances, merchandise, all of that stuff. You will get that information if you just follow at Edge of Sports Pod. You can always listen to back issues of the show at edgeofsportspodcast.com. And please call in and let us know what you think of the rebooted show. Call us up, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. We love playing your calls on the show. Thanks, everybody, for your patience. Stay frosty, people. We are out of here. Peace. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.